The series that we're working through at the moment is uh, entitled, Teach Us to Pray. That is a direct quote uh, from the disciples. Uh, When they saw Jesus, who was praying, they saw that it was part of his pattern of life, something that was consistently going on. Uh, they, They looked at Jesus and they said, well, teach us to pray. One of the motivations for them to say, teach us to pray, was that they were aware that John the Baptist, who had been preparing the way for Jesus, had also taught his disciples to pray. And so, in that sense of a desire to be a true follower, a true disciple of Jesus, uh, they said the same. Uh, And I guess in a real sense, uh, if we are those who would say that we are disciples of Jesus then that would be the same for us, wouldn't it? We would say, teach us to pray. I think it's a really appropriate thing to say because I think in lots of ways, prayer is one of the most difficult aspects of our Christian life for many. It's a challenge. It's hard. It's it's difficult. Now, some of you might be wondering, why is it difficult? It might be that you are blessed with Uh, a real sense of the work of the Holy Spirit in your own life where prayer is just a very easy, natural part uh, of your Christian experience. And yet for others, that's not the case. Uh, And so for those of us who find prayer a healthy, easy, natural experience, wouldn't we want to say, teach us to pray so that we would pray with a greater sense of understanding Uh, and a greater sense of joy and a greater sense of comfort, we could say the same. If we're right at that stage of, do you know what, it feels as though I am just trying to put together words, and, and they are just not coming together, I feel barren, I feel lost, then we would say, teach us to pray. So this is really appropriate, no matter where we are on our journey of the life of prayer. The way that we're working through this series is that we're looking at other aspects of the Bible which speak into the particular section that we're up to. Uh, And so we've come this stage uh, to the point where Jesus says, hallowed be your name. Some of you might have seen the film. Uh, There's not many films that I watch in the cinema And then I say, I'm going to buy the DVD when it comes out, but I am definitely going to buy the DVD for the film Everest. It's a brilliant film. It's a fantastic uh, picture of the tragedy in 1996 when a number of climbers were killed. In that uh, that particular time, there was a man on the mountain. He was climbing with adventure consultants led by Rob Hall. His name was Doug Hansen. Doug Hansen was like lots of us. He was a normal, average kind of guy. He was a postman from Seattle. You couldn't think in lots of ways, could you, of somebody more distant from an Everest mountaineer than a postman in Seattle. That was his job. He'd been previously, in 1995, with Rob Hall on a similar attempt to climb Everest. He got high up the mountain into what they call the death zone. Above 8,000 above 8, meters, your body literally starts to decay. It starts to turn in on itself. The lack of oxygen up there, 
equivalent to around about a third of the amount of oxygen in the air than at sea level. That's how much you're able to breathe in. So most of the climbing is done with supplementary uh, oxygen. Doug Hansen had got so close to the summit the previous year, and he had to turn around and come back down. 1996, for all sorts of reasons, which the film covers brilliantly, Doug Hansen was again on the south summit, making his way towards the top. He decided actually he couldn't make it again for the second time. So close and yet so far away. Rob Hall came back down, having summited with other climbers, and he encouraged Doug Hansen to turn around and to make that final climb, to get to the summit of Everest. And at that moment, something, an experience which is recognized in mountaineering, set in with both of them. They call it summit fever. The absolute determination, the absolute commitment that above all else, no matter what, I'm going to get to the top of this mountain. They got to the top of Everest and they didn't make it back down. They got back down to the south summit and both, both Rob Hall and Doug Hansen died at the south summit. The absolute compelling vision to achieve something. It's an incredibly powerful picture, isn't it? And yet at the same time, I would suggest that every one of us, in one way or another, we live to some sort of compelling vision. Maybe some of us have got that vision tied up in one aspect of life. An absolute compelling, committed life which is pursuing one thing one objective. And you might look and say, do you know what? <laughs> I am just not like that. I, I don't kind of get one thing in my mind and pursue it like summit fever. I don't go for one thing. And yet in another way, maybe we are pursuing one thing. We are pursuing, I think all of us, a desperate desire for life to have joy, happiness, meaning, and satisfaction. For some, that is a single point that will identify that. It's getting to the top of Everest, or it's doing something else. For the others of us, it's having a whole balance of different issues in life that are right and in order. My summit vision, you might say, is to have security in my retirement, and my family around me, and good health, and all of those different things. That kind of pursuit of those objectives, that desire for that mixture, that combination, is what I am pursuing in life. I am committed to that. And we might sometimes need just that moment, that little prod, to recognize that we are all, in some sense, we are pursuing something. That something might be made up of lots of things, but it is a whole lot of things pointing to one objective. We live our lives with a goal, a common belief that our goal will bring us satisfaction. This little section that we've uh, just read from Isaiah 
was at a moment in the life of Isaiah where I guess he might have been feeling as though really all of his hopes for, for the nation of, excuse me, for the nation of Israel were beginning to fall apart. We see at the beginning of this little section in Isaiah chapter 6, it opens with some stunning words. It opens with this, in the year that King Uzziah died. That is a tragedy. Isaiah is one of those men, those focal uh, moments in the Bible which describes the life of God's people through one man and the voice of God to the people through one man. And here we have Isaiah experiencing on behalf of the people and explaining it a moment of tragedy for God's people. One of the things that we know about King Uzziah is that he was faithful to God. It's one of the marks of him. In fact, if we look at the kings of God's people over the generations, what we see is that it ebbs and flows. And it says at moments that they were faithful to God. And it says at other moments that they were unfaithful to God. And it feels in many occasions as though the roller coaster of the life of the people of God was this experience dependent upon the life of the king, so was the life of the people. When God's people were being led by a, by a king who was pursuing God, then the people were blessed and did well. And when God's people were being led by somebody who turned away from God and pursued other gods, who pursued other ambitions, who pursued other hopes, then their experience was devastating. And here we have one of those moments, which way is it going to go? Uzziah is dead. <laughs> and now we have Isaiah experiencing, I wonder what the next step for God's people is going to be. Here we are. What is our hope? And Isaiah is in the temple. And then we see this incredible, mind-blowing, astounding vision. It is an amazing vision. Isaiah is there, and in a moment, it's as though he is there and captured by this vision of the glory and the majesty and the amazing dignity of God. Around that scene are what he describes as cherubim. Uh, and they are flying around, sorry, seraphim. Uh, they have six wings. This, this kind of language is uh, it's kind of language which is trying to get us to understand something which is beyond our understanding. We have seraphim with six wings, and two of their wings are used to hide their eyes from the glory and the majesty of God. Two of their wings are used to hide their feet from the glory and the majesty of God. And two of their wings are used so that they can fly around and they can declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. The seraphim there are so captivated 
These holy beings, which we know little about, are so captivated with the majesty of God that they don't feel worthy as holy beings to look into the face of God with their eyes. They don't feel worthy that God might know their paths. And yet they still sing and declare and cry out in this majestic anthem, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Isaiah is astounded. Most of the commentators think that he was in the Tatshuk and the temple. We see in verse 4, most of the commentators would, would suggest that what he is experiencing at this moment is precisely what we see at the inauguration of the tabernacle and at the inauguration of the temple. They see this incredible cloud come down from heaven, this presence of God in an incredible way, and Isaiah is there in the middle of it. And there he is. And at that moment in time, the very foundations of the temple are shaking. It's as though, in figurative terms, Isaiah is experiencing that understanding that in the face of the majesty and glory of God, all of the things in this world that seem stable are actually unstable. They are shaking, they are quivering, they are quaking because God is present. The language that is used here is beyond anything, really, that we can come to terms with, isn't it? We can't imagine what that must be like. But let me put it like this. I want you to imagine the most incredible human experience, the most breathtaking, the most spellbinding, and multiply it by a million times, and you will not even get close to this experience, this moment that Isaiah had. Why? Because what he is experiencing for that moment in time is the breaking in to the things of this world, the eternal world. A little moment where everything that we don't see is suddenly seen. Everything that we can make up in our minds, everything that we can equate as something of glory and majesty, we use language which is describing this world, don't we? We use things like light and rainbows and, and thunder and lightning and all of those incredible... We can't do anything other than use language of this world. And yet Isaiah, for a moment, saw the glory and the majesty of God. Now, let me ask you a question. We've got the answer on the screen. What does it do to him? What does it do when Isaiah is confronted with that majesty and that glory? He says, Woe to me, I cried out, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. 
It's that moment where when he comes into the very presence of God, his response is not, wow, look at that. It's, I am done in. I am finished. I am like a tiny little match lit and approaching the sun. And at that moment when my tiny little light comes close to the sun, what's going to happen? It is going to get consumed. It's going to be gone, finished, over. Because in the light of that majestic glory of the greatness of God, I am absolutely nothing. And that was Isaiah's response. He says, when I know who I am, when I know who I am in the light of God, I am nothing. What happens? I find this one of the most amazing moments in the Old Testament. What happens when Isaiah finds himself in the presence of God? Well, firstly, he says, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips. What's what's he saying there? Is he saying I simply say bad things? I think it's more than that. He's saying everything that comes out of me in the light of this is unclean. Everything that I could possibly say in the light of the glory of this God is dirty and filthy. The construction of my sentences is horrible. (laughs) Even if I try to construct good sentences, they are horrible in the light of this because everything welling up from inside of me is just in the light of God, it is nothing. I think that's one of the experiences of us as human beings, isn't it? On occasions in tiny little ways. We might think that we're great at something. We might think our particular uh, activity or a particular sport or whatever it might be. We might be good at it or our, our, our musical talent or our, our artistry. And then we come close to somebody who is a master. (laughs) And we're nothing. And Isaiah was way beyond that scale. I am done in. I am finished. He is actually saying in the light of this, I know that I deserve to be snuffed out. I know that in the light of this, I am a tiny little match trying to light up against the glory of the sun and I will be gone. And then the most incredible thing happens. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand. He'd taken it with tongues from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. What does Isaiah actually deserve? If the glory of God is one thing when it is just seen, it is multiplied a thousand times when we see that then 
that very glory exhibits grace and mercy. One of the seraphim fly to the altar. What's the altar all about? The altar is that place where the fire never goes out, where sacrifices are brought and offerings are made. And he takes one of those burning coals and he brings it and he touches the lips of Isaiah and all of this picture language is going off and Isaiah is cleansed. Cleansed by what? He's cleansed by the very place where there's sacrifice. Where there is atonement made, Isaiah is atoned for. What does that mean? Atoned, that's a kind of, that's a great Bible word, isn't it? What does atoned mean? It means at one, in simple terms. It means, can I be at one with God? No, I can't be at one with God. Why? Because I am one of those tiny little matches and my glory is nothing and His glory is massive and therefore I can't be at one by God, with God. And yet, over here, there is something going on at the altar which makes it possible for me to be at one with God. There is a sacrifice made and when that sacrifice is made, I can be at one with God. And that connection is made incredibly vividly. It is made visually by one of the seraphim going and taking a pair of tongs and taking one of the live coals, one of the things that creates the very sacrifice and touches the lips. And in a moment, Isaiah knows that he is cleansed before God. Isn't that an amazing symbol of grace? Suddenly, that man who feels ruined finds himself in a place where he knows he can be in that very presence which should consume him. Grace. Grace is an incredible, amazing, astounding thing. And that's one of those great glories and majesties of God. Isaiah sees the the vision of God and he thinks God is amazing. He thinks God is glorious. And that, in a way, was good enough At that moment in time, it was good enough that God was glorious. But how glorious does he become when he cleanses Isaiah? In the mind of Isaiah, how glorious is God? And that vision of Isaiah makes Isaiah see that from that moment on, that experience, knowing that, seeing that, is life-changing, isn't it? Isaiah, from that very moment on, for the rest of his life, could never, never be the same again. There is a moment in most of our lives which can be defining. It shapes the rest of our life. We become something different because of that moment. And Isaiah has one of those moments. And the moment that he has is when he sees the glory of of God. And that was good enough. I guess in a way was, I deserve to be snuffed out, but I have seen the glory of God. But then he's cleansed. He doesn't die. He lives. And he's changed forever. And it is that idea, that very idea, which rolls in to our prayer line this afternoon, this model that Jesus presents. He says to his disciples, when you pray, 
you say, Father, hallowed be your name. What does that mean, hallowed be your name? Hallowed means simply to make holy. To make holy. Here's the thing. God is holy. He is holy. We can't make Him any more holy than He already is, can we? We can't say, I'm going to make God holy, because God is already holy. But what we can do is we can make our hearts see that God is holy. We can make ourselves understand that God is holy. Why would God suggest in Jesus, why would Jesus say, the thing that you need to do is to declare in your prayers that God is holy? Why do you do that? Why would you make that decision? Simply because of this. The holiness of God is our very hope. I'll say that again because it is so important. The holiness of God is our very hope. Aren't we matches? coming near to the sun? Aren't we just like Isaiah? In fact, when we utter any kind of words which recognize, which remind ourselves that God is holy, that God is beautiful, that God is majestic, that God is incredible, what are we doing? We are reminding ourselves that we are just matches nearing the sun. We are reminding ourselves of who we are. What does that do for us? We haven't got an altar, have we? We haven't got seraphim, have we? Flying around, ready to take a coal and and cleanse our lips, have we? We've got something way better. Because you see, one of the problems with the, with the sacrifices of the Old Testament was that they had to be sacrificed again and again and again and again and again. And that fire could never go out and that temple fire had to always burn and those sacrifices had to keep coming. And then we have a greater altar. Where is our altar? It is at the cross of Jesus Why is the cross of Jesus our altar? Because when we say, hallowed be your name, we are saying, I am a match nearing the Son of the glory of God. I don't deserve to be at one with you. But through the work of Jesus, I can be at one with you. I can come and I can say, I can shout out, you are a glorious God. You are an amazing, incredible, majestic, unbelievable God. I can say all of those things and it is not a terrifying thing to say. In fact, not only is it our hope because we are not matches snuffed out, it is our hope because that pursuit will last, and it will be our joy. I guess there is nothing more poignant, is there, 
than reaching the south summit and then reaching the top of the mountain and then coming back down and not making it down any further than the summit, the south summit. That goal, that objective of the summit did what? It eventually cost me my life. The pursuit of my, go- that, my goal, my objective, it eventually took all that I had and it killed me. That's what it does. And you know, the thing is that every time we place our objectives in anything other than the hope of the glory of God, we are placing our hope in things that are eventually going to consume us and crush us and kill us. Why? Because nothing lasts like the glory of God. Nothing lasts. The only thing that lasts is the fact that Jesus is on His throne in heaven. That's the one pursuit that is worthwhile. And so when Jesus says, pray, hallowed be your name, He's encouraging us to do something. He's encouraging us to locate the hope of happiness, not in this world, but in the eternal world. Locate our hope of joy in that God, not in the gods of this world, not in the things that we pursue in this world. Pursue that eternal joy, he's basically saying. So when we pray, one of the things that we do is we remind ourselves, we instruct ourselves that this is worth pursuing. It's worth pursuing. This is worth chasing after. One of the things that we do is we say, in failing weak words, I'm pursuing a God who is beautiful, who doesn't snuff me out, but who raises me up. You see, pursuing the glory of Jesus is not detrimental to me. It's exalting to me. Every time one of us seeks to exalt ourselves, it is always at the cost of somebody else, isn't it? I stand on the podium and receive an Olympic gold medal, and I am exalted. At what cost? At the cost of silver, and at the cost of bronze, and at the cost of every one of those who didn't make it through the heats, and at the cost of every aspiring athlete who didn't make it, I am exalted because it costs others something. And then God comes along in Jesus, and He says quite simply this, when you exalt me, it's not going to be at your cost. It's going to be at your elevation. What a hope. What an incredible hope. Nothing compares with that because it is the only sustaining hope that we have. It is the pursuit that will last. So holiness is our hope, holiness as our activity. Tim Keller says this, I think it's incredibly helpful and it, it writes directly into this excerpt of, of Isaiah. He says this, Nothing but prayer will ever reveal to you yourself. 
Because only before God can you see and become your true self. I think that is an amazing statement. Everybody's pursuing, trying to find the real me. And what he says is quite simply this. The only way that we will find the real us is in front of God. Because it is only in front of the glory of God that we are stripped of everything else and we see the real us. And then when we see the real us, he says, when we come appropriately before him and we are stripped in helplessness, he says, now be cleansed and lifted up and come into my presence because I am not going to shut you out. I am not going to snuff you out, but you now know the real you. He goes on to say as a result of that, when we start to pray, when we start to come before the glory of God, it is not surprising that pursuing God in prayer means that we find ourselves speechless at times, unable to articulate words, because we're suddenly so deeply conscious of who we are. Can I just, in terms of our activity, can I encourage you? If you are in, the, in those stages, no matter where in our prayer life, because we can hit these quiet times, we can hit these wilderness times at any moment, the fact that we are at times feeling speechless before God is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a reflection of our understanding of who we are coming before. So what about day-to-day life? Does that mean that the only way that we can pursue the glory of God is by somehow hiding ourselves away and building ourselves up into some sort of prayer focus that allows us to see the vision of the glory of God? Is that how it works? Paul says, nothing could be further from the truth. Those times of relationship and closeness with God in our quiet time together with God are great times. But he goes on to say this now, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Now let's redeem Everest, shall we? Because you see, if we are pursuing a goal like Everest, and I don't know, I don't know the spiritual state of Doug Hansen. This might be where he was. But it's an example of what we can do in every aspect of our life. In pursuing that summit, we can have two objectives. One objective is I can exalt me. Or the other opportunity is I can exalt God. How do I exalt Jesus Christ? and the Son of God, and the glory of the risen God. How can I exalt Jesus in that summit pursuit? I am so close to the end of my abilities. My human abilities are so limited. But as I trudge through this ice at 8,000 and so meters, and I am breathing deeply to take every step, I know that you never tire. You never tire. And in that moment, we've turned around all of those experiences of our lives. And every 
part of our life has opportunity for us to reflect in our thoughts and say, you are hallowed in my thoughts. You are holy. You are a God who never slumbers. You never sleep. I'm struggling in this creation, and yet you, with a word, brought it into being. I look out across the Kumbu Glacier, and I see the amazing sight of the Himalaya, and you have spoken it into being. What a glorious, amazing God you are. That is the kind of prayer which says, hallowed be your name. And at the other end of the spectrum, John Piper says, we can, we can glory God in drinking a glass of orange juice. When he says, I drink a cold glass of orange juice, and I say, thank you, Father, that you had the incredible wisdom to create human beings to enjoy your world. And you've provided this for me this morning. And you've done all of those things which make this moment a sense of incredible joy. Isn't that amazing? Whether we're drinking orange juice or whether we're climbing Everest, we have the opportunity to live out in our thoughts Hallowed be your name. And quite simply, I want to ask this as we close. We have the moment of choice, don't we? How are we living our day-to-day experiences? Is every experience allowing us to point to this moment of seeing the glory of God in every situation, in every event, in all of the things that happen, in the joys, in the sorrows, in those moments where we say, you are greater And it's great that you are greater. Or are we living saying, I am still pursuing my own glory? That is the simple choice that hallowed be your name makes. The glory of God as our pursuit or the glory of me as our pursuit.